What you had in classical political economy was a word that gets used in two different senses. The word value. It means, on the one hand, value in use or utility. On the other hand, it means value in exchange. Okay, with Marx, there's a complete transformation of the subject matter. Because you get one factor of the commodity being use value, you have the other factor being value. And these are not just words that are being used in common, okay? What we've got is an object, or a kind of object. It's got examples all around us, commodities. And every commodity has this dual character. It's on the one hand value, it's on the other hand use value. And so it's not just Marx substituting the word value for exchange value. Marx is transforming the subject matter from a theoretical category or a concept or word value into what's basically an anthropological and philosophical investigation of the artifacts that are predominant in the society, which is commodities. And, and this goes to the issue of, do we need to have these commodities? Would this exist in all forms of society? Do we need to have commodity production? Is there always value? Is there always production of value? Or can we overcome these things in socialist society? And that is a teaser for this episode of Radio Free Humanity, in which I talked with Andrew Kleiman about a recent presentation he gave about use value, exchange value, and value. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about a presentation Andrew recently gave at Yale University on Marx's use of the terms use value, exchange value, and value. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So we're, we're recording this current event section uh, at 7.17 on Thursday, November 5th. We've both been, like everyone in the world, glued to the election results, and we are having this discussion before there's been an, you know, an official declaration of who's, who the winner is. Though at this point, if I was betting, I would bet my money on Joe Biden, because it seems like his chances of winning Pennsylvania are very strong at this point. So we thought we'd take this podcast to talk about what kind of things we can start to think about in terms of the struggle against Trump, uh, Trumpism when this election is over. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to say that we're basing this on the expectation that, that, that Trump will be gone. And it looks like that. I mean, he's, he's going to lose the election. But then, you know, could he manage something in the Supreme Court or, or something? It's possible, but it doesn't look likely. The, the real problem is, however, that what, what we're back to then is a situation in the legislature, the Congress, 
which uh, Obama faced from 2010 to, to 2016, where you know the Republicans blocked everything. So they're they're going to blo- they're going to block everything. They're threatening to block you know any cabinet appointments they 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 don't want. You know, there's some stuff that, that Biden might be able to do through executive orders and so forth. But now you've got a six-three majority against him on the Supreme Court that is going to be itching to you know invalidate any executive orders he he may have uh and if any legislation does go through they might invalidate the the legislation so what we face is a tr- tremendous problem going forward even without trump there's the trump base and i'm encouraged to see more people just getting clear in their head as a result largely of this election you know and and trump uh, getting massive support what 68 million votes at this moment uh you know despite the coronavirus despite everything those people have stuck with him they they, they go to his super spreader rallies i mean people are beginning to to to, to grasp but this is not just Fox News and a few people manipulating good people behind the scenes. You know, there's not good people on both sides. There is a proto-fascist large minority of the population, and their goals and aims and and, and activity, they, it's got to be smashed once and for all. And there's got to be stuff done to reverse you know, these bad decisions that are going to be coming down from the Supreme Court and the ones that we've already had, Citizens United and so forth, there has to be attempts that succeed to restore the democratic institutions and, and, and rules that have governed the United States prior to the last period. It's going to be increasingly difficult because the, the Republicans retain control of the Senate. They got the Supreme Court, and so it doesn't matter what the majority wants, that they, they, they can basically wipe out anything as long as your focus and mindset is limited by constitutionalism, by legalism, okay? There, there, we obviously have to mobilize in, you know, extra parliamentary ways, demonstrations, strikes, very kind of creative actions, that pressure that Biden will not be able to bring to bear. Biden's ability to change things, despite him wanting, oh, they're, let's, let's, let's all cooperate, they're not going to cooperate. But what he can do against that what he can do against that's extremely limited and so what what he needs is a huge shove from the outside and it's not so much to shove him into doing something that he can't do in any case it's to let it be known to the Mitch McConnell's of the world and the Clarence Thomas's and Kavanaugh's and COVID Barrett's that we're not going to let him get away with this uh, that's what has to be done uh, there has been a great start this year with the struggle for black lives unparalleled bravery of people coming out despite COVID-19 months and months of month and, and months that struggle has to continue I know it's tiring I know it's exhausting it seems never-ending but this is what has to be done or we're sunk so the, as we've always said it's not Trump per se that's the problem it's Trumpism I mean I'm, I'm ecstatic I mean the, the, the fact that, that, that Biden is going to be president means they're not going to be you know snatching kids away from their parents at, at, at the border we're not going to have a Bill Barr who acts as an enforcer for Trump uh, and, and so forth we can rest a little bit easier about the, the, the nukes and, and everything that are in the hands of the president there, there's a lot of things that are going to immediately improve but the, the long-term damage that could be permanent if we if we don't do something about it, the long-term damage that the Republican control of the Senate and the Supreme Court majority that they've got, if that does not get reversed, 
we're we're basically sunk because there is no way of no there's no legalism there's no electoral procedures that are going to be available to overturn this because they've rigged it one thing that i'm really looking forward to is trump not dominating every minute of my day every bit of my waking thoughts part of my brain occupied with thinking about the reality of donald trump and knowing that he's out there destroying the country i'm looking forward to to be able to read the news without seeing his name and hearing his voice and reading about the horrible things he's said and done every day i'm you know i'm looking forward to this sort of big brother presence that he took on to that receding and going away. I mean, we don't know what will happen to Trump. He could flee the country and move to North Korea. He could end up in jail. He could become a big celebrity political character. He could uh, die of COVID in six months. I I don't know. But he's not going to have the power over public discourse um, that he had as a president, regardless. You know, newspapers don't have to report on what he says if he's not president. They don't have to pussyfoot around calling his statements lies if he's not president he's not going to have this free public platform and some of the trumpite base will probably be diminished by that fact by the fact that they don't I mean so much of the trumpite base is it's a cult of personality i mean it's more than a cult of personality it's a proto-fascist base with these authoritarian racist sentiments but part of it's also a cult of personality and without the charismatic leader there will be less enthusiasm and less organization around their this sort of proto-fascism unless he's his figure can be replaced or taken by some other politician yeah they're going to be demoralized i i I, you know i mean a lot of the republicans are 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 gleeful you know because they've got control of the senate and they're thinking of crippling any biden initiatives but but that base uh yeah they're going to be demoralized will they reorganize yes they, they can organize even without you know having a president they did quite well for themselves with the tea party where this all started you know so the the difference is this time people are aware of the terrorist threat coming from the white nationalists. This is the big change that I do expect is that we're going to have a Justice Department going after these people. And I even think that the Justice Department will start to move against police brutality. And it really has to be the case that they go after Trump and and all of his enablers. Um, You know, I know Biden wants to bring the country together, but he, he has to be made to face the fact. And I think that there are people who want to impress this on him, he's not going to get these people to cooperate. And, I mean, what what do you do when you're facing a vampire? You don't get the vampire to cooperate. The movie ends when you drive a stake through the vampire's heart. Not until. That's what's got to be done. So, you know, this idea of returning normal we're not going to return to normal and we can breathe easier if we can if we can get to january 21st whenever inauguration day is and get the occupant of the white house to move out of it but at that point we can breathe easier but all of your attention that's focused on trump every day i I think we've got to take all of that energy and be focused on eradicating white nationalism uh, from this country because we're really under dire threat here we're really under dire threat because of it and because of the rigging of the system such that you know you got the 6-3 Republican majority in the in the courts and you got the, the Republican control of the Senate they will screw everything up I mean if there's not a COVID vaccine I mean how, how many hundreds of thousands of people more are going to die and what if Biden tries to institute a, a national lockdown and uh, 
the courts say, no, you can't do it. I mean, there are real material, immediate physical threats that we are facing because of this. Because of the polls, you know, the pre-election polls, which totally screwed up, which is something that's, I, I don't really understand. I don't know if anybody understands at this point how they could be screwed up so consistently. Because of those polls, I think a lot of people were expecting a kind of blowout victory for Biden. And that didn't happen. And as a result, we're getting this, you know, narrative emerge. Oh, well, you know, Trump is going to be defeated. But this is not a repudiation of Trumpism. And... People are saying oh, it's only a narrow victory. And I think it was yesterday Biden and Harris uh, were on stage and Biden began to say, look, look at actually all that's been accomplished. And I, I was reminded back in 2018 when you had the big Democratic victory in the in the midterm elections. Initially, it did not look like that because a lot of the vote did not come in from California and so forth uh, in a timely way. It was then acknowledged as uh, being a wave election. But it did not seem that way at first because so much attention had been put on Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum and, and certain things uh, in a couple of states that were reported early. And, you know, again, what we got was early news that was like extremely disappointing from, from Florida and so forth. So what I want to know is what does this, in your view, what does this election represent? I mean, can we say that there's been a repudiation of Trumpism or there hasn't been a repudiation of Trumpism? Does that question even mean anything? I don't know. Do elections always have to mean to have one significance? Joe Biden is going to have the largest uh, popular vote count in U.S. history. And we had one of the biggest election turnouts ever. So, you know, there are a lot of people with some really messed up ideas in this country. But there's also a large, a larger chunk of people in this country who really un understood what was at stake and did a lot of work in the middle of a pandemic to put this vote out. And it took a lot of work on the ground to educate people about mail and voting and get those votes in. And there was just a really encouraging amount of mobilization around uh, around defeating Trump. And I think people, a lot of people, the majority of Americans really understood the sort of existential crisis we were in and decided to do something about it. So I think that's significant. But like you said, it's also significant that 69 million people thought that we should let Trump do this, have another four years of this shit show. Yeah, I mean, what I would say with the, regarding that last point is, we knew this, though. We knew that Trump's base was immovable prior to the election. We, we, we saw the people at the super spreader rallies. We've seen his support stay there despite Charlottesville, d despite the, the, the separations of the kids from their parents at the border. Here's the, here's the way I see the issue. Okay, the polls were projecting a, a Biden victory of eight percentage points. Okay, so if it had been eight percentage points, Biden would have won 53 to 45. So Trump would have gotten 45% of the vote. Instead, what's he get? He gets 48% of the vote. Okay, how can our understanding of the, the sense and the future of this country and the, 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 the center of opinion be so totally affected by 3% of the population moving one way versus the other? The, 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 the trends, the camps, they're there. And it, to be ecstatic because there's a few less of them or ecstatic because there's a few more of them, it's 
just being driven by, you know, by the foam that comes up instead of looking at the underlying structures and, and, and trends that are going on. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. This whole idea of like taking all of the data and boiling it down and saying, here is what this election means. It, it's it's nuts. And I, I think people were hoping, of course, we were hoping, you know, to drive Trumpism back, you know, in, into the night in one fell swoop. But that was never going to happen. You know, even even with a, a, a 10 point Biden victory, we've got our work ahead of us and we can't expect voting this one time, once every four year process to solve all of our problems. We can't expect the politicians to do it. We are the solution. That seems like a good ending. Okay, but you might have something more to say. No, I don't have, I, don't, I have like barely slept since Monday night when we last talked. Um, right, and, and that, that's the last thing I want to say. I want to congratulate uh, Brendan, and I want to congratulate everybody in Pennsylvania yeah, uh, and, and elsewhere it. in the country for all the great work that they've done to try to get us and succeeded in getting us this far uh, in the first step of eliminating Trumpism. Yeah, people worked, you know, people worked people really worked hard really on hard. this election, yeah. Um, yeah. and they did it. People came, people came out uh, in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, this COVID is COVID is skyrocketing in this city. Yeah. So for the podcast today, we're going to talk about a lecture that Andrew gave at Yale University on October 7th of this year. Andrew, what was the context of this lecture? There is a professor at Yale, uh, Paul North, who was running a, a course called The Value of Marx's Capital, uh, and he's actually co-teaching it with another professor, Paul Reiter, who's uh, at a different university, I believe, Ohio State. Uh, and the two of them are actually collaborating on a new translation of volume one of Marx's Capital. It's not ready yet. And as part of this course, which is billed as a careful reading of Capital at Yale University, they are bringing in a variety of uh, weekly colloquium speakers. For instance, Terrell Carver, or myself, and so forth. So we have a good re- recording of your presentation, and that's posted at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, and we'll put a link in the podcast description. And there's also a link to the text of the presentation itself, which is great. I think people should read it. Um, and so for this podcast, what we're planning to do is just sort of go through some of the, the main points from the talk and maybe talk about some of them in more depth. But, you know, actually, I had a more general question for you first, Andrew, and that is just about how you managed to achieve such clarity in your writing and precision. Um, sometimes when people write about Marx, I, th- I think things are sometimes couched in vague and abstract terms. Um, some explanations or discussions of these categories in Marx tend to veer into the mystifying or mystical. Um, people maybe need to use metaphors. Um, that take us away from the the sort of precise formulations that Marx is trying to make, but it was really it was really refreshing to read through your presentation on this topic because there's so much precision and clarity in the way the information is presented. It's also it's also clear that you feel a real responsibility to express what Marx was saying and to try not to intervene between the reader and Marx too much. Whereas sometimes when people are talking about Marx, it's clear that they are trying to 
present themselves uh, in addition to presenting Marx or present their ideas. And you also relate very clearly to the reader what other interpretations uh, are of these categories by other people who have read and written about Marx. So we get a sort of a mini theoretical history or sampling, at least, of some of the way these concepts have been treated or mistreated. And I think that's also really clarifying for readers so they can sort of get a sense of what the the field of interpretations are, not just feel like they're trusting one person's interpretation standing by itself. So I guess my first question is just how do you, you know, what's your secret to this sort of very clear and precise writing on this topic? That's a good question. Uh, that's a very good question. I don't know that there is a secret. Uh, <laughs> well, if there is, now it's not going to be a secret. But I work at it. First of all, I, I learned a long time ago. This is not something I learned in school or growing up. But somebody said, you know, in other languages, you know, florid expressions and long paragraphs and long sentences, you know, that's considered good style, but not in English. In English is a language where good style is clarity and clarity requires requires directness and plain speaking as much as possible. Also, I even more recently read that sometimes we get the sense that people think that it's impressive, that you seem knowledgeable if you use a lot of highfalutin language, and actually psychological studies have been done, and that's not the way people feel. You know, when, when people communicate crisply and clearly, the, that, that's viewed as a sign that, that they know what they're talking about more. And I actually think that that is indeed the fact when it comes to writing about capital. A lot of things can be uh, swept under the rug and uh, a lot of inability or failure to think things through can be covered up by a lot of uh, fancy words. And it, it's it's not something I'm, I'm trying for. I'm trying for the opposite. What I'm trying to do is to have readers, have listeners, you know, have people in general feel that they can read Marx for themselves and interpret for themselves and understand for themselves because that's one of the biggest obstacles, I think, to uh, understanding Marx is the main thing that, that people do wrong when they approach this is they get frustrated very easily and they give up and then turn to secondary sources and at that moment I mean, they might not know that these secondary sources are biased, have access to grind and so forth but what people think they're they're doing they they their eyeballs go along the page of what marx is writing but what's in their head is what they've read in the uh interpreter's account so you you just get this thing repeating again and again this reproduction of this non-understanding and reliance on uh, alleged experts so i'm i'm consciously trying to push back against that but what is the the, the method the method is you sit there and and, you know, if you have to start from a blank page, oh, God forbid, that's really, really hard. But, you know, I've, I've, I've written stuff, so I pull stuff. Uh, I've got what other people say, so I can respond to that. And I, I sit there, and I work at it, and I go, is that the right word? Is that a better word? Should I move the sentence around? It's work, but uh, there's no real tricks to it. Well, I wonder if one of your secrets is just that you might have a different motivation than some other people who also write on this topic. Some people who write on this topic are trying to, they, they come across like they're trying to impress people with how clever they are. 
or maybe they want to produce a new reading that they think is going to impress people or some kind of clever correction to something they think is wrong about uh, what Marx has written um, or some clever way of applying Marx's categories to the real world to label and explain things in the world that'll make people have these aha moments or say, oh, now I understand. But it doesn't seem like you are working under those kind of motivations. So what would you say your motivations are? This is going to sound strange, perhaps. My goal is to get it right. At every moment, I'm faced with certain problems in writing, you know, and I'm trying to express something, and I want to get it right. I basically sit there until it's right enough, you know, until it's adequate. And that's my basic level of achievement that I'm aiming for, you know, adequacy. Until something is adequate, I, I, I work at it. it. Once it's adequate, then, then I move on. And, on. and sometimes I look at it later and go, oh, my God, you know. But I'm not really trying for anything more than adequate and adequate in the sense of, you know, this is not vague. It's not inaccurate. It's not uh, ambiguous. It's such that uh, I've led into it so it's not coming from out of the blue. It just kinds of things that actually come fairly naturally to somebody who has taught after years and decades of, of, of teaching. You know, you know, that you have to do certain preliminaries before you launch into a, a topic. You have to contextualize. You've got to set things up. Those things actually become pretty natural to, you know, even your decent teachers after a while. And it's that same kind of sense that I bring to, to my writing there's no real tricks to, to any of this it's it's just work it's just work 99% 99% perspiration and the other 1% is sweat <laughs> <laughs> right but a certain orientation and a certain goal for what you're trying to do yes I, I, I think you're absolutely right that my, my writing reflects a different sense of what I'm trying to accomplish than other folks and and their writing you know reflects a sense of what they're trying to accomplish I, I think I think that was an astute observation well, let's get into some of the specifics about your paper. One of the things you say early on in the paper is that some readers get the sense when reading Capital that Marx isn't speaking directly to them, um, and that's maybe why they have trouble with the text. What do you mean by Marx not speaking directly to his readers? Do you mean that he isn't directly relating concepts in a way that describes the real world? Not describing the world as they experience it and not trying to tell them something. This, this is something that's become more of an issue. I've noticed it in the past uh, several years that even fairly educated people, because of, you know, just blogs and also videos and podcasts and so forth, people are very much conditioned nowadays to writers and speakers talking to them, that the writer is got as the audience the person who's reading it. People are, are, are in the main conditioned to thinking that that's the case. And I, I, I think that there are a lot of people, even educated people, who really have not read anything, or if they have, they haven't noticed it, that that's not always the issue. But look how much, when you read something, how much the address is in the second person singular, you. There, there's a lot of use of this you word, right? 
you this and you that and uh, even textbooks like in economics generations ago they used to talk about they so the standpoint would be here you the the reader and I the author we're looking down and we're observing you know how other people behave and so forth now everything's phrased more as a conversation between the author and the reader and this is going to be very frustrating to somebody who reads capital so there were two things that I wanted to do for the purpose of, of, of this talk one of which is to say look this is a heavily theoretical text and you know if you're looking for something that relates to your daily lived experience you're not going to find it too much, especially in Chapter 1 of Volume 1 of Capital. Not because it doesn't relate at all, but because how it relates can only be clarified through the further development of the theory and, and, and further exposition. And secondly, uh, which is very important when we talk about use value and exchange value, value really uh, what Marx is speaking to uh, is not his reader, but he is speaking to the whole tradition of political economy, you know, English political economy, also French and German and so forth, the whole tradition that preceded him uh, and which he is critiquing. So it's when, when one reads, one has to understand the genre of what one is reading. Just like if you go to a movie and as they do nowadays, they call it a comedy and it's just, you know, people beating up other people and, you know, putting knives in their back and kicking them, which is what a lot of comedies are these days. I mean, you're not really understanding the, the, the the genre. It's important to understand it so that you don't misunderstand it. Okay. So you need, you need to know what it is that you're, you're you're reading so that you don't ask like questions like, okay, Marx says a commodity is uh, use value and a material bearer of exchange value. Well, what does that mean for me in my daily life? That's not a bad question, but you can't answer it at that point. Well, on this notion of Marx speaking to the tradition of political economy that preceded him, what do we need to know about that tradition in order to understand Marx's writing in Chapter 1 of Capital and his use of terms like use value and exchange value and value? Okay. Uh, I mean, the very beginning of Capital, Marx begins by saying, okay, there are two factors uh, of the commodity, use value and value. So, I mean, the first thing to understand is that this division, or actually a similar division between use value and exchange value, or as Adam Smith put it, value in use and value in exchange, that Marx is not just making up these terms uh, and he's not claiming any originality and there certainly is none there. This was a distinction between value and use and value and exchange uh, that has some earlier history, but it comes into modern political economy with Adam Smith, and then it really becomes made famous uh, about 40 years later by David Ricardo. And these are two, of course, two, two of the principal classical political economists that, that Marx is dealing with in his critique. As a result of uh, Ricardo putting this distinction and referring to Smith's Having made the distinction on the first page of his book, Ricardo's book, Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, it, this was a standard uh, distinction. Uh, and what Marx was doing was building on that and clarifying and, and, and engaging in a critique. But this was not like, uh, you know, musings of, of somebody about the, the way things are. This was uh, an engagement with 
theoretical terminology uh, meant to get at certain uh, differences. Also, already, uh, well, there's a, there's a whole other issue that, that you, you really need to understand. There's several issues, but the, the, another thing you need to understand at the beginning of Capital, the first section, is to understand when Marx says, well, exchange value, first of all, appears as a relation, that relation changes with time and place, and therefore there doesn't seem to be anything that's inherent to a commodity, any, any intrinsic value. You have to understand that that uh, is beginning the beginning of a counter-argument to Samuel Bailey, a critic of the Ricardian school. Bailey thought that the Ricardians had absolutized value, turned it into an entity rather than a relation, and Bailey said, well, you know, look, value is just a relation between two things, you know. You've got, like, uh, a coat uh, it has a value of so much gold, and conversely, the gold has a value of so many coats, and that's all there is, and you don't need to look at something under underlying this because there ain't nothing underlying it. It's just a relation between the two things. Uh, I didn't get into that in much detail uh, in my, my talk uh, for Yale, but but that that is, it's there, but it, it's kind of not expressed in terms of Bailey said this and so forth. Although I did get it a bit into that in the in discussion period. What I tried to do was to convey the intuitions that Marx was trying to communicate when he proved, I think he proved that there is indeed a so-called third thing when you've got this exchange relation of, of two commodities. Just so people are clear, can we sort of repeat what it is that Bailey claims in his critique of uh, the notion of value? I mean, is, am I correct that Bailey's saying, look, if a coat exchanges with some linen today and some bananas tomorrow, these are two different exchange values the coat may have, but this doesn't mean that those exchange values are expressions of any inherent value the coat has not quite not quite it, it, it's actually simpler and more easily understandable than that okay today a coat exchanges for a half ounce of gold tomorrow or let's say yesterday the coat exchanged for 0.6 ounces of gold you know it's a somewhat different amount okay so the normal way if you have a gold standard is to say well if it exchanges for more gold it's worth more its value has gone up okay so let's say it went down okay from 0.6 to 0.5. So the, the, we would say that the value of the coat went down. But anybody who's thought about it says, well, wait a minute. How do we know that the value of the coat went down? Maybe the value of the gold went up. The gold exchanges for more coats. One ounce of gold exchanges for more coats today than it did yesterday. So maybe we'd say that the value of the gold went up. So you face this issue. The exchange relation between those same two things, gold and coat or whatever it might be, that changes. And you want to know, well, which commodity is the source of the change? Is it that the the coat has got a lower value or does the gold have a higher value? Bailey comes along and says this is a nutty question. It's one and the same thing and that's all there is. You cannot locate the source of the change in value within either commodity. All that has changed is the relation of exchange between them. 
Okay, and, and it's meaningless and fruitless to try to locate the source of the change because that would require that we say, ah, there is some value inherent in the code such that its value goes up in itself, not in relation to gold, or its value goes down in itself, not in relation to gold. And the same thing for, for gold. Its value goes up, its value goes down, not in relationship to coats or the myriad of other things that the gold can buy. So, I mean, if, if you have a theory in which um, value is determined by labor time, and you have also, not accidentally, you have a theory in which value has some substantiality, it, 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 it bides throughout time. I mean, what, what Bailey is trying to say is just so deleterious and destructive of any attempt to get at what value is. Uh, as he puts it, and this is something that really enrages Marx, Bailey says, value is only and cannot be anything else but a relation between contemporary commodities. It's just a relation that happens to exist right now at this moment. And because only at this moment can things be exchanged, you know, and so you can't compare the values of one moment with the values of another moment. Okay. And this sounds a lot like something we've discussed several times on this uh, podcast. Basically, it has reduced value to a relation of exchange that exists at the moment of exchange. And supposedly you can't compare the values of one moment with the values of another moment, to which Marx re responded. I mean, Bailey was, I think, probably long dead, but Marx responded in his notes, theories of surplus value. Marx says, look, with the phenomenon of profit, that's exactly what we do. We compare the values of one moment with the values of another moment, you know? <laughs> you, you invest a certain amount of money, and you, you buy uh, raw materials and machines, and uh, you hire labor power, and you got a different amount of value sometime later, emerging out of production, you know, and then those commodities get sold. You're comparing amounts of value at one time and another time in profit is that difference in value. So, I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff sounds good when you, you get this, like, very relativistic kind of stuff coming from Bailey, but it just doesn't work. And Marx just realizes that Bailey had put forward these questions that really called into question all of scientific political economy, you know, that of the Ricardians and the Ricardian school, and they weren't really able to answer it. Uh, and this is a very late recognition by Marx. This is only in the 1860s that he becomes aware of this, and he immediately sets out to, okay, I got to put the whole concept of value on a secure footing. So you will not see this in the Grundrisse, written in the late 50s. You will not see this in the 1859 uh, contribution to the critique of political economy. And only only with, with capital will you see it. And Marx works it out at the very outset. And so the, the, the capital that we know reflects something that is basically new, you know, that was not in Marx's thinking prior to 1860. So what listeners will notice if they are reading something that was written prior to that by Marx, like the Grundrisse or the contribution to the critique of political economy, is that the terms exchange value and value might sort of appear in interchangeable ways, and it's not clear if he's talking about either concept sometimes. 
Yeah, he tends to use them interchangeably, use the one when he means the other, or vice versa. And even even in the first German edition of Capital, it's not always as worked out as he would want it to be. So he, there were changes introduced into the second German edition of Capital of 1872 and the, the French edition written around the same time as the second German edition. So, yeah, Mar- I, I think that Marx basically understood conceptually what the, the, the distinctions he wanted to make, but he, he didn't work out the terminology very successfully and, and, until the, the issue became clearer to him, partly because of this engagement with Samuel Bailey. Well, let's get into this a little more. What exactly is this distinction between exchange value and value that Marx develops? Right. So we have Samuel Bailey saying, look, Value is just a relation between these two things, you know. Uh, the, the the coat has gone down in value relative to the gold. The gold the gold has gone up in value relative to the coat. That's the sum and substance. That's all we can say. And Marx's intuition, and this is expressed while he's reading this text of Bailey and writing comments, and this is in what we now call, you know, the theories of surplus value. Marx's intuition is when you've got a relation between two things, there is what's called in philosophy the ground of that relation, okay? So the way he puts it in one example that I discussed in in my, my, my talk on October 7, he gives the example of two points in space that he labels A and B, and they're distant from one another. And he says, yeah, look, on the one hand, the distance is just a relation. You know, if you say that B is distant from A, A is distant from B to the same extent. You know, and you, you can't privilege point A versus point B. They're just two points in space, okay? But, Mark says, look, for there to be this relation of distance at all, there has to be something intrinsic to both A and B. Okay, so distance is not just a relation between these two things. Distance is the ground of the relation. They, these point, these uh, points in space, A and B, are points in space. Not everything can be a point in space. Mark says, what's the, relation, what's the distance between the syllable ah and a table? Well, the syllable ah does not exist in space. Because it does not exist in space, to even speak of a distance between that syllable and a table is totally nonsensical. But to objects, these exist in space. Point A, point B, they exist in space. Okay, So distance, the fact that they can be distant at all, is what underlies and allows for them to be related in a quantitative manner. You know, this is uh, 17 centimeters from that. That is 17 centimeters from this. Okay, that's Marx's intuition, is that there has got to be a so-called third thing underlying that relation between the two things that enables that relation to exist at all. So there's, it's true with distance, uh, and it's true with exchange value. This exchanges for more or less of that, that exchanges for more or less than this, but is that all there is? Is it just a relation? No, these have to be things of the same kind, such that that kind that they are is what allows them 
to be related in this manner. And that kind, in this case, is value. So both of these things are values, or have value. The coat and, and the gold. That's Marx's intuition. And he offers a proof, but that's not the proof. The proof you can read in, in um, you know, like the third page or something of Capital. Commodity has uh, many exchange values instead of one. All these are the exchange value of a quarter of wheat. Therefore, therefore, that, that, that's the proof. Well, let's get into some definitions first. So for Marx, what does he mean by the term use value? Use value or value in use, that's utility or usefulness of something. We say it's valuable, you know, because like a coat can be worn and gold can fill teeth and, and so forth. That's its value in the sense of being useful or having utility. And then how about exchange value? What does he mean by that? Value in exchange or exchange value, that has to do with how much of something else this thing can fetch in exchange. You know, an ounce of gold can fetch in exchange two coats. So the, the value in exchange of the ounce of gold in terms of coats is two coats. Or uh, you need two coats, you have to exchange them to get an ounce of gold. So the value in exchange of two coats in terms of gold is one ounce of gold. Okay, or we say that the price of two coats is one ounce of gold. And finally, value. How is that different than exchange value? Value, as we said, is something different. Value is what underlies the exchange relation between the coats and the gold and any two things. It's the ground of the relation. And so it's distinct from value and exchange or exchange value. And Marx uses the Hegelian expression, form of appearance. The value appears in exchange and in money relations, the value appears as exchange value. I mean, the, the code is itself a value, but we don't see and think about that. We think about its value as being, you know, the gold, if we were on a gold standard. So that's the way that the value that's inherent in the code appears to us. It doesn't appear that the code itself has value, but it appears that, ah, it exchanges for something that is value, gold, and reflectedly, by virtue of being exchangeable for gold, therefore the, the code has value. And, and that's, you know, what, what value form uh, theory basically says, says as well. So in your talk at Yale, you presented to the students some definitions of exchange value, use value, and value given by some different people who've summarized Marx and asked students to identify errors with these definitions. And the first one you chose was the Wikipedia entry for exchange value, which reads, quote, Marx regards exchange value as the proportion in which one commodity is exchanged for other commodities. Actual money prices only roughly correspond to exchange values. I'll say that again. Actual money prices only roughly correspond to exchange values. And then going on, the exchange value of a good is determined by the socially necessary labor time required to produce the commodity. So what's wrong with this uh, definition, Andrew? The first definition, Marx regards exchange value as the proportion in which one commodity is exchanged for other commodities. Not the fullest uh, definition, but it's serviceable. It's, it's, it's correct. 
And it's not like I'm saying it's correct. And it's not like it's correct because Mark says it. This is the standard meaning of, of the term coming from Smith and Ricardo and so forth. Okay, second one. Actual money prices, according to Wikipedia, only roughly correspond to exchange values. What's wrong with that? No, no, no. The exchange value of a commodity in terms of money, in terms of gold, the, the, the price is the exchange value in terms of money. Prices are just a special form of exchange value, exchange value in relationship to money. Yeah, the, the, the price of a commodity is its exchange value in terms of money. That Price is, is just a shorthand term for exchange value in terms of money. Uh, so the coat might be exchangeable for some linen. It's got an exchange value in terms of linen. It's exchangeable for money. It's exchange value in terms of money, whatever amount that is, whatever amount of money it fetches, that is its exchange value in terms of money or its price. So the price of a commodity is its exchange value in terms of money. It doesn't just roughly correspond to the exchange value. So if, if two coats exchange for one ounce of gold and gold is money, the actual money price, one ounce, doesn't just roughly correspond to the exchange value. It is the exchange value of the coats, the two coats, in terms of money. So that's why that's wrong. So then what about this last part of the Wikipedia entry that says the exchange value of a good is determined by the socially necessary labor time required to produce the commodity? Um, well, no. <laughs> how, how much money a good exchanges for or how many sandwiches, you know, a cup of coffee exchanges for, or how many bananas, you know, some crude oil exchanged for, that's not just determined by the socially necessary labor time required to produce the commodity. Uh, I mean, first of all, it depends on what's going on with the other commodity uh, as well. What the writer there means is the value. Okay, Marx's Marx's theory, and that's again in the very early pages of, of Capital, is that the magnitude of value, the magnitude of the value of any commodity, is exclusively determined by the socially necessary labor time required to produce the commodity. But that's the magnitude of the commodity's value, its intrinsic value, its value in itself. Not that statement by Marx is not meant to be any claim about how much. Of something else the commodity will exchange for because prices don't don't equal values okay so what's wrong with that is to say that the exchange value of a good is determined and it's not just terminological because that can get people to thinking that marx thinks that the only factor that determines the price of something which is exchange value in terms of money that the only factor determining the price is how much socially necessary labor time is required to produce it that's not his theory at all. I mean, so here we're not even talking just about mud pies where the labor time is not socially necessary. Let's imagine that all of the labor is socially necessary. That's still not fully determining what the price of the thing is for a variety of reasons. So let's move to another example you gave students and ask them to find what was wrong with this summary of Marx. Uh, Duncan Foley, a prominent economist at the New School, in his book, understanding capital, he wrote that, quote, the commodity can be exchanged for other commodities. This characteristic of exchangeability, Marx calls value. It is important to understand that Marx views a value as a substance contained in definite quantities in every commodity. Well, 
Um, I mean, first of all, it's even rather imprecise if he were to say this characteristic characteristic of exchangeability Marx calls exchange value. But certainly what Marx called value is not the characteristic of exchangeability. I mean, coming from Smith and, and Ricardo and, and so forth, the, the article has certain value in use and has a certain value in exchange. It, it's, it's exchangeability has always been understood to be value in exchange or exchange value. But when you ask how much exchange value it has, you want to know more than it has the characteristic of exchangeability. So to speak about exchange value, you really have to also talk about the magnitude. So it's dicey even if Foley had said the characteristic of exchangeability is what Marx calls exchange value. But it's not what Marx calls value. I mean, Marx is at pains to say, ah, gold exchanges for coats, the coats exchange for gold. But underlying that exchangeability of the one for the other, and what underlies also the quantitative proportion in which they in which they exchange, is the fact that each is a thing of the same kind, and by being things of that kind, that is as what they exchange as things of that kind, and that kind is what he calls value. They're, they're both the same kind of things, these commodities, the gold, the coats. They're both things that have value or that are value. Okay, that's, And that's not the character of exchangeability. There's something about them that allows us to say, ah, point A in space, point B in space, they're distant from one another because they're points in space. Coat, gold... They are in an exchange relation because they're things of a certain kind. They're both values. Okay, so Foley didn't, didn't, didn't get that right, but then he compounds the problem with the second sentence, which is just, it, it's coming from a different planet, as far as I can see. He says, it's important to understand that Marx views value as a substance contained in definite quantities in every commodity. Well, if he's just Foley has defined value as the characteristic of exchangeability, we would have to read that as, it's important to understand that Marx views the characteristic of exchangeability as a substance contained indefinite quantities in every commodity. Well, how can a characteristic of exchangeability be a substance? How can it be contained in every commodity? And how can it be contained in definite quantities in every commodity. It just doesn't make any sense at all. You also point out that there are things like land or securities that don't have value. They're not products of labor that are still exchangeable. Yeah. You can exchange, you know, baseball cards. You can exchange bodily fluids. <laughs> it's not commodity exchange, but it's exchange. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, it's exchangeability. Well, in just a moment, we will get back to this conversation with Andrew about use value, exchange value, and value. But first, a few words from Andrew Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors our podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Well, we've been getting into the exchange value-value distinction, but maybe we should also go back and catch just the use value, uh, exchange value distinction. You you also ask students to find the error in an entry in the Encyclopedia of Consumer Culture, their entry for value, colon, exchange, and use value, which begins by saying, quote, for Marx, the value of a commodity has two necessary but contradictory aspects, use value and exchange value. Right, which makes value some kind of abstract universal term. Right. Where these are the concrete particulars. Right. Okay, so you got M&Ms, right? But you, you can't just, you know, show me an M&M. It's either got to be plain or peanut. So the concrete particulars are plain M&Ms and peanut M&Ms, whereas the abstract universal M&M only has these two forms of appearance. Uh, yeah, only these two particularizations. Okay, that, that's a very common misconception of what Marx is doing. Why is that common? Does that come from one original misreading that's been repeated over the years? I, I don't know, 
but it, it was there even when Marx was alive. I, as I discussed in my talk, Marx commented on you know a book that contained a discussion of Volume One of Capital by a German professor Adolf Wagner, and this book came out I think in 1879 and. Wagner said, this is what Marx is doing. He's subsuming use value and exchange value uh, under this general category of, of value. And Marx is writing these marginal notes and saying, no, this guy does not understand what I'm saying at all. I did not do that. And then he explains what he did do. And then he turns uh, and says, look, you know, here in, in chapter one, I actually caution everybody when at the beginning of the chapter we said in a customary manner that the commodity is a use value or object of utility and an exchange value. This was strictly speaking wrong. A commodity is a use value on the one hand and a value on the other, not an exchange value because the exchange value is only the form of appearance, the mode of expression of the value. You know, just like a number of centimeters is a mode of expression, a way of expressing the distance between points in space A and B. Okay, but each of these is a point in space. So it goes back to, to Wagner. Wagner had this misunderstanding. So we've seen it again and again with all kinds of people. Wagner was not a Marxist. We've seen it with the Marxists. The same thing that you read from Varul in the Encyclopedia of Consumer Culture, the same exact error is on the website of the Marxist Internet Archive uh, in the glossary entry for exchange value. Uh, it's very common. And I, I, my guess is that it arises because of just the very simple fact that Smith began this whole discussion with, really. He says, look, the word value is used in two different senses. It means the utility or value in use or the amount that you can fetch in exchange by, by trading the thing, value in exchange. So what I think people get a sense of is that Marx is hypostatizing or reifying, turning into a thing, a general word that has two different meanings. And, and he's just not doing that. But, but people, I think, are reflecting the fact that there are two meanings that, you know, they can easily grasp. And so this value, what is it? Well, it's got to be something that unites them, something they have in common. You know, so, so he's, he, he's looking for some commonality of use value and exchange value. And, and, but that's definitely not what Marx is doing. But I think that that's what people seem to have a sense of because they can't figure out what he is doing. They're not aware of what he is doing. What he's doing, to make it even clearer, with the term value is to say this is what is inherent in each commodity, intrinsic to each commodity, okay, that underlies the value in exchange, the use value being wholly different. And this mistake is pretty much the problem that Althusser had with the opening chapters of Capital, why he advised people to skip those chapters, right? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's so funny because Afizer wanted to drive the specter of Hegel back into the night, or however it's it's put it, and he said, you know, even 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 capital is not free from Marx's earlier Hegelian inheritance. You know, there's this epistemological break, but Marx is constantly wrestling, and only with his notes on Wagner, circa 1880, and uh, critique of the Gotha program. 1875, Marx only fully accomplishes this epistemological break way at the end of his life. Even in Capital, you still have this Hegelian inheritance. And here, I'm going to tell you, the readers of the French edition of Capital, that I'm writing the preface to, exactly where we can see this Hegelian inheritance. And it's the terms use value and exchange value. And, you know, Marx got this from Hegel. And when Marx said that he was flirting with modes of expression peculiar to Hegel, you know, in the first edition of Capital, this is what he was referring to. So says Althusser. It's the most inapt possible example he could have chosen. It's just, you know, this stuff comes from classical political economy. It comes from Adam Smith. It comes from David Ricardo. British political economists, not German idealist philosophers. Althusser simply did not know what he was talking about. Well, we definitely haven't covered all of the stuff that's in your paper and your presentation at Yale. So if people want to know more, they should definitely read your paper and watch the presentation. It's all up on the Marxist Humanist Initiative website, and we will post a link in the podcast description. That is all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do check marxishumanistinitiative.org for more writings on similar topics. You can subscribe to the podcast there. You can leave us a comment. You can write to us. Please share the podcast far and wide, and we hope to hear from you.